Index investing or passive investing has grown more popular with investors. Even Warren Buffett has the benefits of owning an entire index like the S&P 500 over the long term. An example of an index tracking ETF is BMO's S&P 500 Index ETF. It's the largest ETF in Canada that tracks this well-recognized and popular index. It provides exposure to the returns of the market cap weighted S&P 500 Index at a low cost the management fee of just 0.08%. This broad market ETF makes for an efficient building block in a portfolio, saving you time and effort while mitigating single stock risk. If you're looking for exposure to the largest and most liquid public companies in the United States, this ETF delivers an easy-to-use solution and instant diversification. Commissions and management fees and expenses all may be associated with investments in exchange-traded funds. Please read the ETF facts or prospectus of the BMO ETFs before investing. Before we get started, I just want to remind everyone that this information discussed today is not intended to be or construed as investment advice. Please consult a professional advisor before putting a loony in any of these financial markets. The dirty secret is that no one's ever going to get paid back. People have the shortest memories when it comes to investment. We just got to get Keith into Bitcoin. Hey, there's a bubble. Welcome back to Looney Hour, episode 120. As always, join me the three amigos, Keith Dicker, Ice Cap Asset Management, brand new Patagucci Vest, and Rich Diaz, PGM Global. Welcome back to the show, gentlemen. Boomer. Hey, guys. Hey, uh, you know, I'm in the football-themed two games left for the season. I'm excited for this weekend. That's all I have to tell you. Man, your team really uh, was cutting it close there last week. Yeah, I know. But like I say, you know, at, at the end of 60 minutes, usually the better team wins. And there are no style points, you know, in football, not like basketball, I guess. But, uh, so like in the football world, the uh, like if if you don't know the football, this is the semifinal weekend. Think of it that way. Uh, but they actually call it the championship weekend for a different reason. But uh, this is the most stressful weekend. Because if you win this one, then you're in the Super Bowl. Uh, the Super Bowl has its own stress, but this is the uh, the big one. So it's funny, every uh, 49er fan, they're all cheering for the 49ers and everyone, every other human on the planet are cheering for the Detroit Lions this weekend. They're the feel-good team. So we'll, well see. We'll see how, how it goes. You, no, no predictions. You're going to jinx it. Oh, well, I'll do a prediction. Absolutely. No, every time you make a prediction, you know they lose. Yeah, but that doesn't, that's just, that doesn't matter. I have no highly correlated. Here it comes. Are you ready? Cor- Correlation equals causation, everybody. Don't forget. Um, That's a good point. Magic 8-Ball says San Francisco 37, Detroit 16. Oh, wow. Oh, you jinxed it. Blow out. No. I'm cheering for the Detroit Lions. I want. I, I always cheer for the teams, the long-suffering fans. I, I, there's something about a, a group of people who spend all kinds of money and time cheering for losers. <laughs> Um, that that's just the really appeals to me. So uh, I'm definitely cheering for the the hey, Detroit Lions. Rich, I got something different for you. Tell me, what what do you call a fish that's missing an eye? Um, I don't know. What do you call a fish that's missing an eye? <laughs> what? <laughs> do you get it, Steve? No, I don't get it at all. Uh, waiting for you to drop the joke jesus <laughs> f-i-s-h the i is gone it's just f oh my god S-H. jesus worst okay let's oh, okay well we've got an uh, important interview today 
uh, with Tian Yang of Variant Perception. He is the CEO of Variant Perception. Variant Perception is a um, macroeconomic research group that caters to hedge funds, banks, and family offices. Uh, you might have heard Tian before. He's been on a whole bunch of you know, macroeconomic podcasts and shows. And I've been following their work for years and years. So we're excited to have him on. He's going to come and chat about uh, what's going on in Canada, what their models are showing them, uh, how that uh, compares to the U.S. and around the world, and and really their outlook uh, for this country. Because we've got a lot going on. We've had the Bank of Canada rate announcement meeting. Uh, they obviously held rates. So we'll get into some of the feedback there. Uh, we've got some bankruptcy numbers, U.S. GDP. GDP data that came out, ECB announcement. Uh, so we're going to get through all of that. But uh, we also had some interesting news uh, on topics that the Looney Hour has been following quite closely over the last uh, couple of years since we really started this podcast. And um, Rich, we had the federal government came out first and foremost and announced caps on foreign students. Uh, so for those paying attention... Again, Canada's population growing by over a million people a year for the last two years, and the bulk of that being non-permanent residents, aka foreign students, uh, because there's no cap, there's no limit on that. And so basically, we've just been funneling millions of people into this country <laughs> oh, at these hokey colleges that are operated out of strip malls above uh, burger joints. If only. And getting these... <laughs> fake diplomas that uh, are really quite useless yeah. and exacerbating a housing crisis and putting strain on our public infrastructure. Yeah. So should we give them credit for finally, after immense pressure from basically everywhere, including the Bank of Canada, which we'll get to in a minute, um, finally adjusting their... So what do they do? They, they're, they're capping it at the 35% lower? Uh, think, yeah, so there's uh, they basically capped it at 35% okay. lower than existing targets. I, again, yeah. I don't know. I'm not you know an immigration expert by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, essentially that's what they did. And so what that means basically is that it, it's... So they're giving... It's a decrease of 35% from 2023. So the cap is expected to be set at 360,000 permits. And so based on that, the cap saves will be allocated by province based on population. So the cap is going to mean that some provinces can increase the number that they have, while others, such as Ontario, uh, will have to cut intake by roughly 50%. Yeah. Okay. Same with Nova, same with Nova Scotia as well. I mean, we have a pretty good university factory so down this if way. You, if you're a landlord with a basement suite in Brampton, Ontario, <laughs> you might have a problem. Uh, so do we give them credit or, or do we make fun of them uh, or both? What, what's going on here? I, I mean, I guess they well, finally it, figured it out. Yeah, it, it is what it is, right? You know, eventually the conspiracy theory turns out it's not a conspiracy theory. It's actually true. But yeah, I mean, I know it's like you, you were joking about, you know, the, the, the college is above the burger joints and, and stuff like that. But a lot of the bigger universities are affected as well. And, you know, that, that's something that we've always that we've also been talking about, you know, the operating budgets for a lot of universities. You know, they're already running at a 30 to 60 percent deficit for a lot of them. 
And then they had this shift from in-province students to out-of-province and then, you know, out-of-country. But I read a really good article this week. I forget which paper it was from. The Hub. I think it was on The Hub. Yeah. Yeah. Did I share that with you guys? I think you did. may have. Yeah. And uh, but it went through like specifically, uh, you know, I, I won't mention the universities that were in there. You can find it for yourself. But but some of them are just going to be mullered coming up with, with tuition because they're getting hit by this. And there's a lot of implications with it. Um, so we'll have to see, you know, whether you give the government credit or not for doing it, you know, you can you can never go back in time to fix things. And maybe this is the right way to fix it or or who knows, but it is something that we've been talking about for a while. And I'm sure this is a plug for the loony hour, of course. Here we are Thursday afternoon. You're watching it on Friday, but, you know, we'll have a few more uh, issues or factors coming up that we, we think are going to be pretty big as, as we get later on into this year as well. Well, then, okay, I want to give us I want to give us some credit then, because then <laughs> if we can't give them any credit, I'd like to give us some credit there. That's the sound of me patting myself on the back for identifying this issue that, um, by the way, I know we're going to talk about the BOC later, but Carolyn Rogers basically um, articulated almost word for word what we've discussed um, and credit to her for being so strong and forthright in her commentary. And in the monetary policy report, which, I, again, I don't want to front run us too badly, but there's a whole chart. Chart 3A, which we'll discuss, which also talks about population growth, rent, and inflation. So there you go, Steve. There you go. Um, but uh, without further ado, let's bring on our guest for this week, Tian Yang of Variant Perception. Tian, welcome to Looney Hour. Yeah, thanks for having me. I hear you guys are a very big deal in Canada. Well, we don't know about that, but we do appreciate uh, your support there. And obviously, we're super humbled to have you on the show. Uh, a lot of respect for what you guys do over there at Variant Perception. Um, but we, you know, looked at some of your your chart decks here before we got onto the podcast. We just had the Bank of Canada came out, held rates. Um, you know, li listen to the commentary from Tiff Macklem, Carolyn Rogers, kind of pushing back on the premise of rate cuts. You know, they're kind of still talking a tough game. How are you looking at that? As do you have any sort of opinion on on the rate cuts, in inflation here in Canada? How is variant perception looking at the market these days? Um, yeah, so one of the ways we try and model uh, central banks is we'll build regime models that use a mix of um, hard economic data as well as market data. And so, you know, if you want to get geeky, essentially, we're like training lasso regime models. But effectively, you end up with a probability for the likelihood the central banks should be hiking or cutting. Now, obviously, with all models, you know, it's only as good as the input. So, you know, effectively, what the model is telling you is that historically, when we've had the current combination of economic data in Canada, as well as the current kind of price action in Canadian assets, historically, the central bank has been cutting. So we'll have generally have a bias that they should be cutting. Um, the second kind of follow-up to that is, okay, but how much of it is priced in, right? Because ultimately, there's one thing on trying to guess what will happen, but you kind of have to play the game a little bit. And I think the real reason why the pushbacks, you know, let a little bit of price action is a lot has been priced in. If we go back to even uh, Q4, right, obviously we've seen kind of uh, two years have come, come all the way off. We actually had a bunch of trading models go off to go long Canadian fixed income back in uh, September, which actually are quite nice, whereas I feel like right now a lot of these things are getting quite stretched. So, you know, a, long story short, I do think they should be cutting, but quite a lot's been priced in. So 
you kind of have to, you know, let the market price a bit out before you kind of bet on it again. That's probably high level how we're done. Kind of characterize so, it. So right, so right now, then, uh, realtors and more variable rate mortgage owners in Canada are, are you become their next best friend. It seems like by saying that. Yeah, well, you know, I think it, it's probably not that un unreasonable, right? If you look around the world, most central banks are probably in that easing mode. Obviously, I live here in the UK. You know, like the Canadians, we, you know, we don't get the benefit of kind of, you know, the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, you know, get 30-year mortgages, right? Or we're also on the two-year, five-year kind of fix here. So, yeah, we're, we're all kind of in the same boat looking for, looking for a bit of relief. How about, how about yeah. talk a little bit about... Um... It just seems like, you know, we've had so much volatility across all financial markets over the last, oh, I'd call it four or five years now. I'm starting to lose, lose track. But just focused on central bank policy, you know, reality versus fantasy and where they come again next. Because, you know, it, I think, I mean, I would argue all the Western central banks have become synchronized. I mean, they all went from zero to five or heading back down somewhat. Um, how unusual is this? And can your models recalibrate? fast enough to to capture these swings and like again probably put some color on that for our, our listeners as well um yeah well actually on, on our models we're actually starting to see quite a lot of divergence um to your point obviously when you get these you know historical biblical events like covid and stuff it's not surprising it's going to all synchronize but actually right now what we're seeing is canada within g10 at least canada most needs to cut and then the u.s you know, ECB needs to cut, but actually in the UK, in Australia, uh, it should actually still be pretty hawkish. So we are actually starting to see these divergences play out. And it, I think it's actually creating a lot of opportunities in the kind of, you know, stir short-term interest rate kind of market. So actually, to your point, it has been synchronized coming in. Everything has traded together, all the curves steep and flattened together, but actually the outlooks are starting to diverge. And I think it's ultimately linked a bit to... Um, you know, that's essentially the structure of the labor force, right? Like how tight do those um, labor markets get? How much of a skill mismatch is there? And how much fiscal has been going in? And, you know, it's actually pretty divergent. So it's actually starting to be quite interesting again. How are you looking at... Oh, go ahead, go. Rich. No, I was just going to... I So I have the different view and hopefully we don't get too down this rabbit hole as far as, um, as, far as having this discussion. But I'm of the view that Canada can't cut um and um you know one of the things that you know um, tiff macklem said was you know breadth and the persistence of inflation was an issue for them he highlighted that more than 50 percent of the cpi basket is actually going is actually growing faster than three percent and he also articulated that the deficit spending although not as um inflationary as it had been over the last couple of years is rel is still infl uh, inflationary add that to the strong population growth um so i'm just curious about sort of where sort of outside of those sort of little items wh why are you so sure or why do you think the canada should cut um and, and yeah so maybe you just articulate that um yeah so i think um there's quite a lot of kind of stress we see in some of the hard growth data linked things so small business uh small business delinquencies have picked up quite a lot uh, you know, building permits have drawn down quite a lot from peak levels. Uh, Real M1's drawn down quite a lot from peak levels. So there's some some hints that growth, you know, is kind of got, you know, pretty decent headwinds coming. On the inflation front, 
I think it's actually a valid point you made because again, we need to differentiate time horizons, right? There's one thing which is kind of structurally what is kind of inflation going to go versus cyclically. So I think it's more that cyclically on our models in terms of lead lags, the deflation or disinflation rather trend can likely continue. But ultimately that equilibrium level of ultimately where it ends up probably is a bit higher, right? To your point, there's other things we look at um, on Canada in terms of like youth employment, you know, Canada's kind of employment to working age population ratio is actually quite high compared to say the US. So actually, if you want to talk about, again, to get, I don't know how geeky you want to go. If you want to talk about R star and real neutral rates and stuff in Canada, the models say it's quite high actually, right? Due to a lot of structural factors. But I think it's more, if we're talking next kind of six, nine months, we're probably more prioritizing the cyclical aspects, the kind of risks around growth, you know, the risks around if you just hold on a bit longer, that it's, you know, it's likely to be a bit more vulnerable. Um, you know, it, I guess the one thing is with the US and the kind of Godot's recession and how resilient it's been, you know, they've been running massive fiscal deficits, right? So that's been like the span in the works. That's really preventing a lot of these leading dynamics kicking in. In Canada, it's obviously a lot less kind of fiscal stimulus, the impulse kind of neutral-ish. So without that element, it's, you know, we, our view would be that it's more likely you get kind of a more cyclical growth inflation downturn. Um, but, you know, ultimately you still got to kind of profit from it, right? And to, and in fact, I'm a little bit of the view that, yeah, we went a bit too far. We need this to reset a little bit to kind of put, the, um, put kind of the long bond kind of trade back on. With, you know, when it comes to sort of the whole, uh, you know, a geek fest or whatever, uh, <laughs> Rich is pretty strong in that world. I think he's undefeated. Um, but it's kind of interesting because, you know, we're all, we, we seem to, you know, we talk about monetary policy all the time with the Bank of Canada and what the Americans and the Brits are doing and stuff like that. But you, you just brought up a really good point in that I don't think we give it enough attention sometimes, but it is the fiscal side that's really, in some ways, it is, especially, I think with the Americans especially, it is overwhelming the the targeted monetary impact from the central bank. And uh, I think that's something we have to think about quite a bit as well. Uh, Steve, I think you had something there lined up as well, right? Yeah, just uh, based on your models in terms of like leading indicators, um, you, one of the ones that you typically tend to look at is building permits, correct? Yes. Can you walk us through that just for you know the audience that says, well, why why do you look at building permits? Um, so th the way we think about the economy is, it's generally very, very hard to forecast levels and magnitude, right? Things are always changing. It's very hard to fit a regression. It's by, kind of by definition always going to be wrong. But if you think about it from a more first principles point of view, the sequencing in which certain things happen in the economy have, have to happen in a certain sequence. So, you know, time only flows forward, right? So you can't build a, generally you can't, you're, gonna, you're not going to build something unless you get a permit. So by definition, if you see like a big move in building permits, it's fairly likely that, you know, construction activities are going to pick up. Presumably, if, you know, you build a bunch of residential, then eventually people are going to move in. They bought a new house. They feel good. They're going to buy, you know, white goods, buy a new fridge, you know, you know, buy whatever Zoom, you know, new Roomba is. So I think you, you kind of, we're generally looking for a lot of these sequencing kind of things that if you see it, then it's more likely that there's a turning point coming in, in kind of the coincident data that that's kind of follows. But obviously it's not foolproof. But the idea is to track a bunch of these, right? So obviously within housing, you have building permits, right? Building permits actually lack kind of uh, like interest rate conditions, right? So it's more like you're tracking, okay, what's credit conditions, what's financing conditions, 
home uh, home builder sentiment, and then it shows up in building permits and it shows up in construction. So it's generally like sequencing that hopefully um, helps you narrow down the window in which a term might be coming. Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Just in, I know you guys have in your charts there, you've highlighted, you know, national building permits. Um, and if you kind of unpack that a little bit further, like locally here is you're not seeing, you're seeing developers pull back uh, quite aggressively. And in fact, you see it um, more so on builders that are building single family homes as opposed to like condo, condo, condo buildings. Uh, reason for those, they're, just, they're more nimble and so they can pivot quicker. And so if you look at building permits uh, in BC and Ontario, which are your two sort of frothiest housing markets, uh, single family building permits are running at like 30 year lows. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's a interesting point. And ultimately, do you see that sort of filtering through into CPI? And is that play into some of your case for, for the Bank of Canada to ease? Um, yeah, well, like I say, on, on the leading relationships in inflation, mostly it does seem to be lower. You know, the Bank of Canada have their own kind of various surveys on business outlooks, on, on you know, price outlooks. Um, you know, we look at some of the kind of CFIB surveys on kind of price intention, wage intention. So most of those are obviously more diffusion type indices than outright, but at least they give you like the directional kind of trend. What did you say? Uh, did you say diffusion? <laughs> Wait, is it? Did, did we hear like the, the buzzword? Or? That's right. That's a bingo. <laughs> so you, you, now I'm all hot and bothered. Anyway, sorry. Keep going. Keep going. Oh, diffusion geek fight. Geek fight. <laughs> <laughs> um actually one thing I, I wanted to ask you guys about is you know obviously you mentioned you know especially vancouver british columbia obviously the china factor historically has been like a big driver you know in in the good old days i'm, I'm actually curious given what's going on in china like how much impact has that been having yeah no that's a really good question um so my proxy for foreign capital coming into this market is i always look at um how pre-sale activity is doing for high-rise luxury condos. So when a developer markets, you know, a new 50-story high-rise coming into downtown Vancouver, you know, those are so expensive. They're all luxury buildings now. Like they'll sell them at $2,500 a square foot. Jesus. It was really expensive, right? And so the market that they need in order to absorb that is they'll typically have to go offshore. And we haven't seen any of those projects really launch successfully in like five years. So I'm still not seeing that market rebound. And and so I'm kind of curious to segue into into your views on China. Yeah. Um, how are you looking at things right now? Um, yeah, well, I think we're probably a little bit at the point where, well, we're definitely at the point where all Western investors probably realize a lot of China's kind of things are like a feature and not a bug in the current environment, right? I think it's taken a bit of time to adjust to kind of the new normal in China in terms of the direction of politics, you know, what is considered important for kind of national rejuvenation. So, you know, those things are different. Um, obviously, you know, this week, you know, you're starting to see kind of more hype around stimulus um, and so forth. Um, my, my personal view is I think there needs to be a more um, kind of declarative sense from the leadership that they really do care about economic growth. They care about entrepreneurship and that, you know, a lot of the anti-corruption and things are just that it's anti-corruption, but that, you know, they still want kind of the, you know, the, 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 the kind of rising living standards fueled by essentially, some, you know, a capitalist kind of 
engine, right? And the, the challenge has been that if we veer too far off and you start impacting animal spirits, entrepreneurs, private entrepreneurs, you know, that becomes quite challenging. So um, I, I think that we probably haven't really seen the sign yet. I think mostly it seems to be a lot more kind of SOE government led. Sorry, Richard. Yeah, did you no, to... no. So, sorry, I, I was more for the other guys. Um, but I was just quickly, do you, so you deal with mostly institutional investors. I would say those are most of your clients. Yes, we're yeah. seeing um, Chinese equity markets on a let's just say as a as a value on a valuation metric. Maybe this is a bit simplistic, but like on a forward PE ratio, flirt with single digits. Um, do you think that institutional investors are making a mistake given the strength in earnings that you're seeing from? whether it's uh, the electric vehicles manufacturers, whether it's certain tech and software companies that are doing really well, or whether it's um, sort of sort of electrical components and manufacturing companies, we're seeing sort of the earnings grow, grow in some cases exponential, uh, exponential growth numbers out of those sectors. And yet the valuations are, are plumbing new depths. And from institute, uh, I just wanted to, I was just curious about your institutional clients. Are you getting, do you think they've, are they making a mistake? Or do you think it's, we've gone too far? Or do you think that there's just been a, a wholesale um, change of, of view towards um, China from an institutional investment perspective? Mm, I would say most people are probably comfortable with the concept that China is a, a trading market, but probably people are a lot less comfortable with the concept China is an investing kind of market. In terms of the low valuations, I think my perception is, you know, Russia famously always had low single digit PEs for a very, very long time. And eventually, you know, it, well, it never really re-rated, right? And so I think that's, that's kind of, it's no longer as simple as a investing numbers financial framework. Because yeah, it's like a no brainer, right? If you want to go valuation, it's kind of a no brainer. But I think you're getting to the realm of, you know, return off capital rather than return on capital. What if your money gets stuck if you're in the, um, you know, onshore, right? And that, you know, things happen there, um, you know, that's, you're into the realm of probably career risk for, for Western investors, because <laughs> if you make money in China, you probably don't get the credit because with the benefit of hindsight, yeah, it's a no brainer, but you know, everybody could have bought in 2009 and, you know, 10 years later, look like a hero. Right. But if you, if you invest in China and you lose it all, cause something happened, like, you know, but, and you have alternative choices, right. What, you know, why you can you know, invest in Japan, which is why you're seeing the Nikkei, kind of uh, Hong Kong divergence, right? You can invest in LATAM. There's lots of different themes. So I suspect that's probably more what's going on. Um, I really think it's kind of incumbent on, on uh, well, I guess both, everyone involved to actually dial down the rhetoric and actually show some sense of what we want to return to normality. And so far, obviously, we're probably not, not quite there yet. Um, like personally for me, like structurally, Everyone knows about China's obviously issues with debt. Like historically, in all major debt cycles, you do need some kind of recap, right, to really kind of set the floor. So, and it's very hard to see how we get that in China, right? But usually when you when you come out decades of kind of over-indebtedness and you have a banking recap, you know, we know what the, what the damage is, the credit cycle can go again. Everyone will suddenly get a lot more confident that the cycle is for real. Whereas because we just never have that reset, it's just always the, the sense of, you know, you know, it's just very, very wide, the, 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 the uncertainty, right? I think we could have a, a whole episode dedicated to career risk 
so yeah, you guys all laugh because we all know what it is. But I think there's a lot of people out there that are listening. That they're they're probably not quite sure what it means in the investment world. And uh, you know, for you to mention that and bring it up, you know, I chuckled, of course. And uh, so maybe we'll go into that a little bit deeper at some point in the future. But it, it is a, a very real uh, thing. He's an unsophisticated word in in our, you know, in our industry, and, and that's for sure. And as well, I think people know, you know, valuation. Close your ears, Rich. <laughs> Doesn't matter. Valu- yeah, they're for valuations for chumps and some of these. No, I know, like but there is. I mean, my point flow, was right? money going in and out. Yeah. My, I mean, that's your view, and that's fine. But my my view is that these a lot of these companies are generating incredible amounts of earnings. And if you wanna, you wanna be a, do you wanna be an owner of those earnings streams? Yes or no? And get your money in there. Lead by example. No, no. I mean, to me, India is an interesting example. Um, you know, you talked about Japan being the source of uh, where people are moving to instead of China. India has been sort of one of the main beneficiaries of that outflow from China. But anyway, this is a Tian. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to yeah. chat about? Yeah. Maybe? Well, actually, just on that, right? Maybe like when you really think about it from a portfolio construction point of view, it's kind of if you just treat all the China stuff you buy as a core option, right? You can kind of think about your portfolio as okay, these are my 5x upside if something goes right, but I size it correctly. And this is my kind of core, high quality, resilient compounding part of the portfolio. So, yeah, you've, you, you know, we've had multiple, multiple LPPL crashes go up in China simultaneously on every Chinese asset. Obviously, now it's really starting to squeeze. Um, the back test on most of these models generally very good that it might sustain for a while. But I think the mindset has got to be like, you know, I think it's the same reason people own Tesla and these things that sometimes people like, you know, we get too obsessed with valuation as a joke. But yeah, is there some some version of the world where Elon pulls it off because, you know, he's pulled stuff off and doing SpaceX? Yeah, right. But am I going to put, is it going to be like a big position for me? Probably not, but it's a, it's a co-option. It's probably gonna be a, it could be a zero it could you could do it right and i think maybe when thinking about portfolio it's kind of more into that bucket of yeah you just have a bunch of random things like this that if it works you know no one expects it how, how much are you looking I have one at... more question ahead, i want to Keith. jump in for, yeah then see if you can clue it up then um in like in when, when you're you know so you're based in london you're in the uk correct yeah yeah uh, why don't you share with with our listeners like in in your conversations without you uh, initiating the conversation how often does canada come up like how big is canada on the investment stage or economic world just so that our listeners can sort of you know frame it from their mind i've got to be without laughing, no laughing that's not fair um well obviously because we work in finance by you know you'll naturally interact with kind of the canadian pensions right they've been very proactive in setting up offices and stuff so that would be kind of a a reason I would interact with it. Obviously, the you know here the big sport is obviously you know football, right? And like cricket and rugby, and like it's not that linked to Canada. I mean, you know when the Queen goes visit back in the day, it might be in the news, but it probably doesn't necessarily come up too much. Um, I do notice getting pushed a lot of these WestJet adverts, so but I don't know how, <laughs> how 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 much that's like that. That's the case for everyone else, but yeah. So we. What you're saying is nobody in the investment space really looks at Canada. Well, I mean, it's probably not the first question people ask, but I would say when you say for like global macro traders or people who do it, if you bring it up, people are definitely interested. But, you know, obviously by default, we're, you know, we're all forced to think about US, China, Europe, and then you have to, and then obviously 
yeah it's just it's just the way it goes isn't it well let's let's steve, let's, steve. let's pull on that thread get him get him steve get him no i want to pull on that thread a little bit more it's like one of the you know earlier in the show here you know you mentioned that you know your models are suggesting the bank of canada should be one of the front runners in terms of easing policy um one of the feedback that we get quite often is you know from our listeners they say well how can the bank of canada ease if the us economy is still strong the fed is is not going to ease nearly as much the canadian dollar could just go to hell in a handbasket um do you have any concerns there? And then obviously, you know, hey, the you know, Canadian dollar weakens, that then reignites another potential secondary wave of inflation. How do you kind of look at that from a currency perspective? Um, yeah, so currency is a kind of one of the hardest markets to model that you know we found. So and I think it's just getting harder now because there's a lot more factors than before, right? I think before you could get away with, you know, valuation, RER, carry. And like it does most of the job for you. Um, these days, because of the role of fiscal, um, because of like shifting capital cycles, it becomes a bit harder. So, you know, we will also run kind of, you know, machine learned models, but essentially where we enforce kind of conditions on kind of current account, fiscal deficit, um, carry, you know, valuation and so forth. And basically right now in Canada, it's actually a bit more neutral. Like one of the interesting things in, in the FX world is, Again, I'm trying to, I'll, I'll keep the geek factor to, to a medium level, but I think this could be quite interesting. Um, So like, you know, in economics, when you go to school, you study kind of these Mundell Fleming models on the economy, right? And it's, um, and essentially it can lead to a lot of very contrarian setups in currencies. So sometimes if you run a big fiscal deficit alongside a, fis uh, a current account deficit, but tight monetary policy, the currency can actually strengthen. Even though when people look at it like, oh, you run a deficit, oh, you know, the government spending all this money is, is bad, it's going to cause inflation. And so that's one of the implications that spits out from kind of the Mandel Fleming. And this was actually made very famous by Druckenmiller and Soros back in the day when Druckenmiller adopted this playbook when he went along the Deutschmark um, after re reuni uh, reunification. So, you know, these are a lot of the dynamics that we're trying to capture in these models. And it kind of hasn't mattered because nobody's been running massive fiscal for ages, right? But now that you have the fiscal, these things are actually starting to kick, kick back in. So in Canada, it's actually fairly neutral right now, despite all the, all the concerns there. Whereas like, you know, I live in the UK, the most contrarian thing is, is actually pound. And the pound's been unreal resilient, even though we, we got like a pretty, you know, fairly recessionary setup, it looks like. So there's a lot of these funny dynamics, I think that's really messing up um, kind of the longer term effects kind of strategy right now. Sorry to interrupt the show. I just want to let you know this episode is sponsored by Addy. Addy is the largest real estate crowdfunding platform in Canada. Invest in real estate for as little as a dollar. Addy just dropped their 39th property on the platform. It's a property in Calgary, a rental project site. If you're interested in Addy, you can get more details at addyinvest.ca. That's addyinvest.ca. How are you looking at bond yields over the next, uh, over the medium term here? Yeah, this is this is where it's really hard, right? Because again, time horizon matters. Going back to our inflation discussion, because yeah, in the kind of cyclical six, nine months, yeah, if growth slows, inflation slows, right, and everyone's you know bonds of you know suck for basically three years, then it, it could keep going and you could keep rallying. But then structurally, you know, there's lots of reasons to think that the kind of equilibrium yield 
for where ten year and these things should be is a lot higher, right? We're living in a world of a lot more coordinated fiscal monetary policy, right? We're, we're clearly, you know, with the U.S. president, right? It's going to be okay for everyone to spend a bunch of money when they feel like it. Um, you know, demographic shifts on our models, at least, actually su suggest yields should be going higher, which I think that's fairly controversial because people have different models. But but the way we think about demographics is, um we think about the pool of savers versus the pool of consumers globally, but we GDP weighted, right? So because obviously everyone talks about like, obviously there's a lot of young people in Africa, but it kind of doesn't actually drive the pool of kind of savings and consumers. So on that, it's a pretty unambiguous, we're, we're running out of savers and there's a bunch of people consuming. So the price for the yield on savings needs to go up. So yeah, that, I that's agree with you, by the way. That's yeah. a, I'm happy you mentioned that. So it's good. You're, you're in good company. Sorry, okay. keep going. Perfect. We agree on something. Yeah, no, no, we, we agree on lot. We agree on lot. Yeah. I think that that's that that uh, demographic shift sort of away from just not having enough um, warm bodies, basically in seats. I think, and that that drawing down of people's savings as they age, I think, is is something that people the, the bond market has not at all reckoned with. But uh, just please don't give Justin Trudeau any ideas as far as more deficit spending. <laughs> <laughs> It probably doesn't need us to give him any ideas, right? Like, <laughs> if your neighbors to the south, are, I mean, imagine they just carry on the last year's pace. We have, if you end up with two years back to back, seven percent plus GDP deficit outside of a war, outside of a recession, just like everyone's going to get ideas. What do you think about Europe? I mean, we talked about the UK. We talked a little bit about China. Um, your view on the US? I think we need to circle back on that because I'm really curious. But just in for Europe um, and maybe just Germany in general, if you have any thoughts on that, maybe that some of our Canadian listeners might be interested in hearing. Uh, yeah. So I think Europe Europe has behaved in line with leading indicators, both European inflation and growth. You know, basically the story of last year was leading indicators for growth broke for the US. Right. That's the whole story. But Actually, in a lot of other places, it broadly worked quite well. So what you're seeing is leading indicators were terrible. Inflation is going to go down. Now it's coming through in the data. And actually, leading indicators starting to bottom. So you, just as like the headlines and everything is coming out on kind of you know hitting recession, Germany's doing terrible. So it could actually, I, I would say we're, we're at that kind of just, as, just about turn, but it's not too vigorous a turn. But typically for clues on Europe, we'll follow economies like Sweden. So there's a lot of these small open economies exposed to the global industrial cycle, you know, that, that actually give you more of a clue. And so, you know, if Swedish data keeps in, you know, Swedish leading data starting to improve. So if that follows through, that's a clue that maybe Eurozone as a whole will get um start to do better, right? This is a bit like when people look at South Korea to get a sense of like, you know, China and Asia. Well, that's the thing about South Korea is like Taiwan and South Korean exports are actually doing really, really well which I think has caught some people off guard. I mean, is that just a function of the U.S. deficit spending? Is that Does that give hope for countries like Germany that are sort of geared to that, those other economies? Or or is that are there, or are they sort of bifurcating, going different directions? Or Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I haven't looked too deeply at Taiwan, South Korea, but I assume, like, given how hot semis are, that's probably supporting them somewhat. Um, but I'm not actually too sure. But to your point... This, actually, this is something I, I did look at in preparation for this. So historically, there's a, a very good relationship between South Korean exports and Canadian exports. Because oh, obviously, historically, actually, South Korea leads Canadian exports, like unreal good relationship. But it kind of makes sense historically, because obviously, South Korea is a bit closer. You get a sense of what's happening with China, and, and then it follows through. That's obviously starting to diverge. So like, this is the interest, a little bit to your question, like, 
how much of South Korea is like a structural thing versus um, a, a sign that the global economy, you know, there's trade cycles coming back. Um, I, I don't know, right? But my, my suspicion is like, yeah, like it's probably the truth somewhere in between. We probably aren't seeing that big a global cycle coming back. Usually when yields go up, it takes it takes a bit of time for the lag effects to feed through. So it'd be it'd be slightly strange if we 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 get these yield hikes, not nothing happens, and then you know we go back to just growing again. So as a whole, have you or variant perception have you been surprised with the resiliency of of the economy, particularly, let's say, you know, in the US, um, you know, I think everybody coming into 2023 was, you know, it was the year of the recession. And it seemingly hasn't come to pass. You know, today, we got US GDP numbers, you know, far exceeding uh, expectations. Uh, so growth remains quite resilient. Have you been surprised? Um, yeah, for sure. So, you know, if we rewind, rewind the clock, I think beginning of 2023, we saw it be a recession. You know, with SVB kicking in, it started to look like it. And then by Q2, we realized something was wrong, right? By Q2, we realized clearly none of these models are working because the labor market isn't breaking. So we ended up doing a bunch of work and we ended up kind of writing the report, which obviously I think you're aware of like this idea of Godot's recession, right? That's what we termed it. But essentially, it's this idea that in a high inflation environment, there tends to be a lot of money illusion. Um, but at the same time, because of the fact we have very strong labor hoarding in the US and the fiscal stimulus, you kind of supercharge a lot of these dynamics that you've seen in historical kind of high inflation environments. So the kind of you know TLDR of this is that a strong labor market is somewhat a feature and not a bug. So because of the prevalence of labor hoarding, companies are no longer as eager to lay off workers because it's so hard to replace them. So you're generally cutting all other costs first and you're gonna to have to be forced into layoffs rather than doing it preemptively. So if you look at the pattern of layoffs, it's only happening in the kind of capital abundance sectors with all the factor cut, right? So if you're, if you're a big tech company, you have, you know, you came in with massively bloated balance sheet anyway, but you're such a quality business, you don't have problems cutting people, improving margins. You know, we've all been studying computer science for 20 years, you don't have problems finding a worker. But, you know, everyone, you know, who's been studying geology, who's been studying, you know, who, who do the industrial companies, manufacturing companies hire, right? Like in a lot of other sectors, labor hoardings is a, is a, is a real phenomenon. And so that's kind of helping keep the labor market very tight. So then the sequencing becomes once things slow down, you need to see kind of more pressure on profit margins, which will then eventually force a very sudden spike in layoffs if it gets too painful. Um, we're seeing, so we're seeing resilience in profit margins, though, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. So that's why. So then, in which case, is, is you know this kind of thing probably carries on, right? So to the profit margin point, though, again. So again, I, I really didn't want to get too geeky on it, but I'm no, go for it. We're having a good time. Kalecki <laughs> levy. I'm gonna throw that out there, right? So, so one of the the so the Kalecki levy is a accounting identity for defining private sector profit margins, and and basically it says. Private sector profits is the result of this saving by governments and households, right? That's basically it. So when you have governments spending a bunch and creating a big deficit, that actually in the accounting ends up popping up profit margins. Yeah. So you've had households draw down savings and the government spending a lot. And that's what props up profit margins. Now the question is, can that continue? So obviously 
in the US, I think even the deficit was probably more generous than they intended, right? Because they didn't bother closing any of the loopholes. And then they handed out a bunch of like green tax credits. <laughs> so like, you know, every, so even though the CBO or whoever thinks you're running like, you know, a, a smaller, you know, it keeps telling you they're going to run a smaller deficit, but the numbers keep not adding up, right? So, you know, it's possible we get a repeat, in which case that is mechanically a problem. The profit margin that carries on. But if the fiscal fades, then was we'll, then you know this this might kick in. And what's your base case here for 2024? What's variant perception's current view or outlook for the year? Mild recession? Soft is it is it the, the magical soft landing? So I think I'm still quite skeptical on the soft landing, but I actually think it's a very interesting environment to have um the markets giving you opportunity to benefit from both kind of extremes, right? So scenario one is we carry on with fiscal, it's an election year, right? Enables labor hoarding, et cetera, to continue, in which case inflation is underpriced because nobody's pricing inflation to go up. So, you know, to the extent there's gold, hips, energy, like there's tons of inflation assets that could benefit a lot that haven't don't have a lot priced in, right? Equally, you know, industrial, um, industrial commodities, you know, a lot of EM, like there's a bunch of things that can benefit in the inflation scenario that's been beaten up last year. So you can have that piece. The second piece is the Godot's recession kicks in, the fiscal, these things start to run out. We, you know, the excess savings start to be run down, the excess surplus earnings that kept companies going start to run out, and then the layoffs pick up, then you end up with more of a hard landing kind of scenario, right? So in that in that kind of scenario, again, if you look at like how a lot of defensive sectors, staples, a lot of these equity markets, they've really underperformed last year. So they typically tend to be more beneficiary. So you can have kind of that bucket as well. You know, there's a lot of bad news priced in there. Um, so that's, a, and then obviously in both legs, the dollar actually could do quite well, right? It's only the middle leg, the dollar does poorly. So um, that's kind of more how, how I'm trying to think about it in that. Yeah, after last year, I don't think it's, I don't, my, my mentality is a little bit stick to the areas where lead indicators did work, do a lot of the, stick to a lot of investment trade ideas around that. Here, we know that there's a divergence. We know, we likely know the drivers, but we don't know when it runs out. Right, like, and I've seen, you know, you've, you know, there's a lot of smart people making comments on in the U.S. state level, um, budgets have not been spent. Right, there's all these things they need to spend, and that could be a boost. Right, there's tons of these things that it's just very hard to actually quantify. So I think for me, what I'm watching very closely is kind of this labor hoarding phenomena, which we we proxy by looking at kind of hiring intentions versus um kind of profits. There's a bunch of surveys from the NFIB and so forth that, and you can see the gap. So I'm kind of really focused on that to get a sense of which way um, it breaks. So, um, so can I ask, can yeah. I ask one, one more question on the labor hoarding? Sorry, I know we're, we're dragging on here, but one of the indicators that I've noticed recently is people working multiple jobs. Now, unfortunately for Canadians, we don't have as good a data, and this is why often we use America as, as the proxy, but there's one series on the from the Bureau of Labor Statistics that shows multiple job holders, either, either as a percentage of total or, or in, the, in the, you know, the absolute number. And if I'm not mistaken, I think we just hit an all-time high for a number of people holding multiple jobs. Now, for an economy that's meant to have a really robust labor market, would you, I mean, doesn't that give you a bit, bit of pause? Yeah, I mean, this is the, there's been so many under the hood signs of issues, right? This, this slow burn. So this goes back to, I think when we say labor hoarding, it just means the labor market deterioration is just slow burn, slow burn, and then sudden, right? This is the classic Hemingway, you know, like very, very slow. And then suddenly, I think that there's so many signs, right? Like, um uh if we think about 
Oh, for example, birth death adjustments, right? That's been adding a lot of things to non-farm payrolls. There's a sense that maybe that's the issue. Can you I explain what that. that is quickly, just so because oh. people don't know what that is? Uh, yeah. So um, normally in a healthy economy, new businesses are being started, right? As time goes on. Now, Perfect. those new businesses are, are obviously not immediately in the survey sample when, you know, the, the, the feds come knocking, asking you questions. So, um, so the, and when we model it or when the statistics bureau model it, they were adding adjustments, which generally boost employment numbers. But these models work on like essentially a trading look back period. So at the turns, they could be quite wrong. Right. And so th there's a bunch of these different divergences, because, again, we see data on a bunch of small business bankruptcies. Right. Small business create a lot of jobs. So should they be creating a lot of jobs? Um, yeah, like state level continuing claims, initial claims, right? There's a widespread like rise and stuff. So there's just tons of weird things in the labor market. You know, the the household survey versus kind of the the um, the BLS surveys and like just like that. There's a lot of signs that something is is it, there's a lot of signs is deteriorating. It's just the the pace issue, and that was a real lesson from. 23 because normally when you start to see it historically it just immediately breaks right it's more of like a like you know you see those credit spread charts when it goes it goes and this time around it's just not it's just not doing it yeah cool it, thank you yeah and just to uh as we get close to wrapping this up here i guess going on ask final question for for our listeners you know that are out there listening to this you know there's a lot of information to digest if you were to summarize like what was what would be like one thing today that you're looking at and saying this is this is keeping you up at night. Was there is there one thing that you're concerned about and or or paying the closest attention to? Um. Well, uh, yes, I think if we if we make it slightly more specific, it'll be helpful. I think just everything. It's like I, I look at so many things. Um, is there anything like in markets? Like so, for example, like I'll get like for myself the the one thing that you know keeps me up at night is is that second wave of inflation, uh, right? Okay. Um, and so I'm just kind of curious, is there anything in particular in markets? Like maybe, it, maybe it's China, you know, having more of a deflationary impulse, um, some sort of refinancing, credit, the credit, credit refinancing. Event. Right. Okay. Yeah. So I think for me, the most important thing this year is going to, which we hit on a little bit is how, um, fiscal evolves in the context of labor holding. So I think these are the two main supports. Um, that's kind of there, uh, going back a little bit to like the U S consumer right like the job market is very strong but personal finance is not strong right maybe that's why people have a lot of jobs like all the personal finance surveys are pretty bad credit card debts picked up quite strongly there's a ton of different things like that so but i, I for me anyway having i think it's just whether how persistent labor holding is and how much fiscal we get i feel like that'll drive a lot in terms of whether we end up in that inflation story or the deflation story but i think before that breaks you're going to get a lot of vol and opportunities around kind of, you know, software future, a lot of the stir markets that keeps trying to price one or the other. Um, but China, I probably feel a lot more relaxed this year than last year. I do think structurally it's going to be a while before you can really turn bullish on China, right? Like I say, without recap, without like really, you know, clearing the decks and, and making it clear we can have another credit cycle. It's going to be really tough. Animal spirits are tough, but, you know, we're clearly at, at the point of, you know, untolerable pain, right? That this they they're starting to come out and really trying to shift the narrative here. So um that I'm probably a bit more relaxed about. Um yes, it's I think it's just all eyes on the US because actually you know what is it's not keeping me up at night, but it's probably the most uncertainty is could this be the first time in history we have a desynchronized 
cycle of the U.S. versus everybody else. So historically, the, the, the saying goes, you know, U.S. sneezes, everyone catches a cold, right? Because it makes sense. But this time around, the U.S. is being resilient while everyone else kind of went through a recession already and everyone else is kind of coming out. So you might have a desync cycle, which could really mess up a lot of kind of traditional frameworks. And, it's because you know, of the uh, it's because of the vaccine that that. <laughs> well, Keith, I think that's a good way to end it. Thanks a lot for that. But uh, no, Tian uh, is it was awesome having you on. I would I'm definitely would love to have you on the show again. But uh, a wealth of information for for our listeners here. So thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me on. There's another good interview there with uh, Tian. So. Um, I think we kind of went around the world and interesting to get his different perspective. It's, you know, it always fascinates me, me when a guy like that, you know, a lot of models, a lot of research, some very, very smart people there um, can get surprised by markets. I think it just shows that, you know, markets have humbled a lot of people, I think over the last 18 months. I think though it also shows, you know, we, we talk quite a bit about we're in this experience now of extremes extremes in monetary policy, fiscal policy, inflation, zooming, and then collapsing and, and stuff like that. And uh, so in some ways, it's comforting to hear someone like TN, you know, they're saying, wow, like this was a bit unexpected. Um, but in other ways, I think you should also prepare people that, yeah, these are extraordinary times. And, you know, we should expect, you know, some unexpected turns yeah, coming up. I think like the takeaway, like the potential outcomes, like even like this year or next year, like the potential outcomes in the near term um, could go either direction, right? And, and it's so, also, we also discovered it's cool to be a geek, apparently, right? <laughs> it is. It is. Rich, that was, your, that was your boy. Yeah, he was great. I, it's fun. It's, uh, it's interesting to hear um, his perspectives, for sure. Um, I really like, I thought his take on the U.S. was an interesting one. The labor hoarding, we'll see about that. I think um, I think companies are profit maximizing and uh and we'll see you know if if demand if aggregate demand slows down one thing we didn't talk about unfortunately was household sector and how strong they are i mean he, he mentioned that there were some weaknesses sort of in delinquency rates and credit card spending and all that but the household you know consumption just keeps ticking along in the u.s uh sort of the opposite of canada so but maybe that's uh maybe we can switch gears a bit and yeah i know we well, still loads to talk about still we don't have much time yeah canada you guys watched the uh the press conference there with tiff macklem um you know it's kind of interesting i mean obviously they they had to push back on rate cuts which the markets are expecting um it seemed like every journalist in that room was saying when are you cutting when are you cutting <laughs> you know a lot of uh, variable rate mortgage holders in that room and they rich they push back i mean you know, they, they play a, a tough game. Yeah, I think for me, there was it was just a couple of things that stood uh, that stood out. Um, one was Carolyn Rogers basically um, really just putting to bed any of these um, claims that population growth and inflation in Canada are not linked. Uh, she wrote, you know, any increase in the population, particularly in an environment of constrained supply, is going to put an upward pressure on prices. And she went on um, to talk about that. In, in the monetary policy report, which we haven't really discussed, I think it's on page 15, there was basically a whole section devoted to the population um, supporting rental prices, inflation, and, and sort of the knock-on effects of that. 
Um, and the other thing that I thought was really interesting for me was uh, Tiff Macklin mentioning uh, breadth and the persistence of inflation. Um, and he said more than 50% of the basket is up is going up faster than 3%. And so for me, that, for, that was too very, I thought, rather hawkish, but maybe I heard what I wanted to hear. I think that's always true in these kinds of press conferences. You basically just, you interpret the things you want, the, the way you want to interpret them. But to me, that's that means that there's no cuts coming. Um, not until you sort of get those things to change. Uh, but but Keith, what did, what did you, uh, how did you interpret it? <laughs> uh, I mean, so what, so what my, what caught my eye, uh, you know, he, they, the Bank of Canada specifically said, hey, demand is slowing and growth has stalled. So that, that's what they said. The first half of 23, they said is is going to be a, a bit tough. And then growth should reaccelerate in, in the second half. So, you know, they, they're, they're calling for a soft landing. And it's, it's always, you know, hopeful. You know, we have that word again. That's what everybody wants to experience. And that's what they're telling us we're going to experience. Uh, but then, you know, the, the downside with it is that that's not what happens. And then as you pointed out, Rich, you know, that, you know, the, the two big, you know, the hockey player in the room, is that the one to say, or the curling rock or whatever, you know, housing shelter CPI still at 7% and food inflation's at, at five. So, you know, those are things that may not come down too hard if we do get a bit of a bit of a hard landing in some ways. So I, I think it's going to be this precarious six months coming up and so you know we'll start to get some more data coming out soon you know we saw the u.s data this you know that came out this morning as well but steve how about yourself what jumped out at you with the bank of canada i mean i don't know nothing it was kind of you know you can sit here and analyze all these comments and at the end of the day do we do does anyone really know i just think that you know it's the bank of canada i'm sure i'm sure you still want to maintain relatively tight financial conditions for now uh, and so I don't think they're going to be like, oh, well, we're going to start easing in March, you know, and we're going to, you know, so I don't think you can really expect anything different from them. I think what I will say is just anecdotally and, you know, it's just funny, you know, reading Twitter today, you're starting to see all these Toronto realtors starting to post all this stuff now, but like anecdotally in Vancouver and, and now what you're seeing and hearing in Toronto is like, you know, people are, the consumer is starting to try to front run the bank of Canada on the housing side everyone's reading CBC news and saying, Oh, I heard rate cuts. I think this is just people that don't listen to the loony hour. That's, I would say how most people tend to think is they, I, I heard this, I read this and, and they take it as if it's going to happen. And so we are seeing people saying, Oh, you know, I heard rates are going lower. I should get into the housing before it takes off again. So we are starting to see, you know, some multiple offers coming back. But I mean, but where we are now, though, is what we talked about, I think, last week and the week before and the week yeah. before that and, you know, and so on, is, is that we, we don't want to see rates coming down 50, 75, 100 basis points. Like, that's going to be economic hell if, if that is is happening. You, you really want them to pretty well stay where they are now. And that means the economy is stable, you know, yeah. we, and we'll, you know, get through this mess. I think there's going to be a lot of people, though. Like I said, I think if rates settle in here, like, you know, maybe if the new normal for Canadian mortgage rates is 5%, I think there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be disappointed. And a lot of people, you know, still 55, close to 60% of the float that still needs to renew with a five in front of it. And so there will be a lot of people, I think, that will be quite disappointed and will have to adjust their lifestyle. So, 
yeah, the range of outcomes this year seems wide open. Um, but yeah, I mean, Keith, we had the ECB out today. I know you follow them pretty closely. What, uh, what, what were they saying? Uh, they, they were kind of similar to the Bank of Canada with, with their message in that, you know, they were strongly suggesting that their next move would be a rate cut. And by the way, we didn't say that here, but that's what the Bank of Canada absolutely said. Yeah. You know, their next move is likely going to be a cut. We don't know when, but that's where we're leaning. And the same thing with, with the ECB. So, you know, yesterday, uh, which was Wednesday, you know, not not to be funny about it, but just to know the sequence of, of events here. Uh, the Canadian dollar w- was very weak on Wednesday relative to the U.S. dollar. But also on Wednesday, the U.S. dollar was extremely weak relative to, to everyone else as well. So on a cross basis, you know, Canadian dollar got mullered on, on Wednesday. And now here this morning, um, you know, it, it's it's the euro turn. The euros, you know, they're, they're getting hit pretty hard here this morning because of their sort of dovish monetary outlook combined with, you know, we again, we, with the Americans, uh, we, we jump into the American story next, but we had this incredible strong data coming out of the U.S. Rich, why don't you hit on that real quick? And then we can clue up then and see with something that you wanted to, to finish with today as well. Well, you, you mean the, the GDP stuff? Because that was, yeah, yeah, that absolutely. was, I mean, the GDP stuff was okay. I mean, it was, um, I mean, it was much better, right? I mean, an annualized Q4 GDP, I think it was the advance, right? It's 3.3 versus a survey of 2.0. Uh, personal consumption, again, strong, 2.8%. That's an annualized number, remember. What was interesting, I thought the price index started to continue to fall. Remember, we've talked about the implicit price deflator, which is basically just a different way of saying sort of inflation that continued to fall. Um, that was for me. I, I thought that what was more interesting is to, as far as the data today that came out was the durable extra durable goods orders in the US just continue to be much more resilient than I think people sort of expected. So, I mean, it was, it's kind of a mixed bag, Keith. I don't know if that, that was helpful to you, but I thought it was sort of a mixed bag as far as the data. That wasn't feels... helpful. That wasn't helpful <laughs> at all. It feels like, just like, I mean, to summarize, like we're kind of like agonizing all over all these data points here over the last couple of weeks, but it feels like we're kind of like in no man's land right we now. We are, that's right. Like that's... everyone's just trying to like feel it out and figure out where we're going to go this year. But with the diffusion index, like not trying to be funny, <laughs> yes, yesterday, again, which, which was a, a Wednesday, um, you know, the U.S. PMI data came out from services, uh, oh, right. manufacturing and composite. And, and again, like the American data on the surface, is it's good. Like it's not bad. Right. Underneath the hood, it's, you know, it's pretty, pretty messy, uh, of course. And uh, but again, if we have this odd situation that TN sort of highlighted, you know, the American story looks pretty good, but it's obviously being, um, you know, significantly boosted by the fiscal stimulus. And so just think of Canada, if we didn't have the fiscal stimulus or the population stimulus, then, you know, our data would look really bad because right now we're sort of treading water with the data. And that's with these two incredible amounts of stimulus uh, factors piping in but steve one more minute and you got to jump right yeah well speaking of messy um to to plug the loony hour things that we've been following along um it was ruled that ottawa's use of the emergencies act against the convoy protests was unreasonable and violated the charter uh the court the, the federal court has ruled um so rich uh keith i think we can chalk that up to another loony hour victory here I'm just laughing because 
Oh man. You know, I don't know. I guess all the good things come to those who wait. I mean, what are we what are we supposed to say? I mean, we felt it was an outrage. It was an outrage at the time. It's nice to hear that the um that the Justice Mosley came out and sort of supported that. I, I'm I'd say I'm just really disappointed that instead of just taking their lump and just moving on. Uh, that they're appealing the decision. I thought that was the most incredible takeaway from all of this. Um, just an inability to appreciate when mistakes are made to adjust. Can, just... can we just quickly unpack that just to, for the record? So the court basically rules that, hey, you know what? It wasn't justified. The reality is, is even though the courts ruled that, what does it mean? It, nothing, nothing really changes. Nothing happens. Um, this is just the discovery, but so Christopher Freeland, the day of says, okay, well, we're going to, we're going to challenge that ruling. And so you're going to spend a bunch more time and public Money. resources, tax dollars to fight this. So you can reverse the decision for what? And political capital. I think that's, that's all that's it is. You're just trying to save face. You're going to go yeah. spend, you're going to spend all these taxpayer dollars just to say, see, we were right. We were like, it's just like, I don't know, I think that's like the most like infuriating part. So let's yeah, just take too. the lump and move on. Like, I think we, you know, we could spend a whole episode on this. Uh, I have very strong feelings about it. And, uh, you know, just a real quick 10 second. It is absolutely horrible to cut off people from their banking because of a different view on something, whether you agree or disagree with the government your banking should not be cut off. That's horrible. However, it also creates this incredible opportunity for the government, for the Bank of Canada, and for everyone else to create this central bank digital currency. Because then they won't have to use the Emergencies Act to cut off people's banking. They can just hit it with a switch anyway, Rich. I mean, CBDC, let's not... But that, but, no, but jokes aside, and don't disconnect from that, because again, like this is, this is where the world is going. If you... If you disagree with people in authority and in power, because uh, what happened, like this, it literally sent chills down people's spines or backs it did for me. or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. That if, if you, you know, donate money to a, a view that you support, but that was disagreed with by government, my God, like it was, it was pretty outrageous. And remember, the whole, the whole reason for the protest was a disagreement about the COVID policies that were in, in place at the time. And, and for some reason, governments on both sides, right? They, they're now getting a, you know, a, a soft pass on this. Yeah. So it's, again, it, this, this should be a very important conversation for Canadians. It's not, you know, red shirt versus blue shirt or him versus her and stuff like that, that, that was an outrageous decision that was made at the time. Then, as you as you mentioned, then Steve sort of the double down, and you know, for the government to say, "Hey, we disagree with it." Um, that that's that's still extremely divisive, and and it creates even a bigger you know rift here amongst everyone. Well, so, that's why I think it's important we like sort of just read what Mosley said, because he says, "You know, I have concluded that the decision to issue the proclamation does not bear the hallmarks of reasonableness, justification, transparency, and intelligibility." and was not justified in relation to the relevant factual and legal constraints that were required to be taken into consideration. That's very blunt and very direct, uh, how do you say? Repudiation of the government's position. 
And I think what people don't real, realize is the Emergency Act is a like, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not a legal scholar, but it is like a very heavy, heavy handed piece of legislation. It allows basically the government to rule by decree and allow and permit all kinds of unconstitutional like behavior. And Keith mentioned um, cutting off people's bank accounts um, and all kinds of other stuff. And and the the arrogance, I think, is really just kind of breathtaking, Steve. I don't know. And the unwillingness to just say we made a mistake and we're sorry. It's just, I don't know. So there's, um, yeah, so the court found, contrary to the government's position, that there were, quote, no violent incidents and threats of violence across oh, yeah. Canada, except at the Coots blockade, and that all arrests at the convoy protests up to the invocation uh, of the emergency were for, quote, minor offenses. But also the lying, remember there was the lying about the arson, that was lying about the all of the, the racism that was that they used as justification, that was the lying about um, sort of the threats to people's lives. Was it disruptive? Of course it was freaking disruptive. That's the point of a protest. But I think, Keith, you're right. Maybe I'm not angry enough about like just giving these people a sort of a pass for what was. But don't forget, if you listen to the honking, Honk, honk. If you listen close enough, it's it sounded like Hail Hitler. Honk, honk. <laughs> that was actually used by one of the witnesses. Come on. Uh, she was I'm a liberal not MP. It was absolutely there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and the other thing with this, you know, for everyone around the world, if, if you live in your, your nation's capital or your provincial capital, uh, you should 100% be prepared that there's going to be protest in your area at, at some point. They might be very minor or they might be major, but that's where the protest is going to take place. And, you know, that's a bit of a trade-off. If you're going to live in Ottawa, you should expect these things to happen. If you live in Saskatchewan, maybe not so, right, Rich? Right. Right. Well, I think uh, to summarize it on this week's episode, Looney Hour 2, Federal Government 0. <laughs> Um, so I think we'll, we'll, we'll wrap it up there and, uh, we'll, we'll make sure to check the score 12 months from now, but, uh, as always appreciate your support and we'll see you next week.